Is there anything about your personality that you would like to change? I don't mean things like, I wish I was funnier, or I wish I was better with names. I mean more serious things. Stuff that you would like are desperate even to have rooted out of your life. Perhaps there's an addictive uh, aspect to your personality that you find yourself regularly giving way to addiction. You're like, you want to be free of that. Or maybe you tend to obsess over things that are outside your control. Maybe you're given to being impatient or anxious or you're constantly battling negative thoughts or you find yourself constantly being critical or judgmental and you long for that stuff to just be gone. Is there something that it feels like is written into your genetic code? Like a craving, a longing for food or for attention or for danger that you wish to be free of, that you wish was just gone? Is there something that you see in your parents or saw in your parents or your grandparents? Workaholism or alcoholism or depression or anxiety or some aspect that you're afraid has been transferred to you and you find yourself doomed to follow the same path. Is there something about your personality, your character, your nature that's so deep-seated and rooted in you that you just want to be free from? love for you to take your Bible and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. It's page 983 in the Bibles that the church provides. 2 Peter chapter 1. This year our series has been the life and writings of the Apostle Peter. And during the calendar year we spent the majority of our time looking not only at some scenes from Peter's life, but uh, we spent the majority of our time in 1 Peter. For the summer, we're going to be spending it in 2 Peter, which is a wonderful, amazing book. It's got some difficult stuff in it. I'm very grateful to, to have had the time to go away and really study through it and feel like this is really something God has for us as a church. 2 Peter begins with these verses, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God and Savior, of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's the introduction to the epistle. And Peter then jumps into a section which specifically addresses the idea are there things in our personality or in our character, in our nature that we long to be free from, that we want to be rid of? Are there things in our parents or in our grandparents that feel like we are doomed to repeat? Peter wants to address the issue of what's going on in our nature and in our character. He does so beginning in verses 3 and 4. Speaking of God, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now stop there for a moment. What Peter's essentially saying in these two verses is, 
God has given to those who are believers in Jesus, those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord, everything that we need to live a godly life. That through the promises of God and the power of God, God has made it possible for every single person who is a believer in Jesus to live a godly life. And the way that has been made possible is in this phrase, through them, meaning through the promises of God, meaning God's been hard at work planning and preparing, making everything possible so that this could happen. So that you may participate in the divine nature. Now that's a stunning statement. It's a powerful statement. What does Peter mean, participate in the divine nature? Well, let's take a few minutes and try to unpack this and understand it. At the base of this is the idea that humans are created in the image of God. That means that we are unique in all of creation. Animals are not created in the image of God. Angels are not created in the image of God. Nothing else in all creation is created in the image of God except humans. What this means is being created in the image of God, we were given the unique capacity for union with God. That whatever it is about humans, I didn't come up with the idea. Whatever it is about humans, the way we were designed by God, we were designed in such a way that we, above angels, above animals, can experience union with God. This means that God is able to live out his life in us in a unique way. Nothing else in creation has that ability, but because we were created in God's image, God is able to live out his life in us. This is why in the Garden of Eden, when Satan comes to Adam and Eve and contempts them with the forbidden fruit, he says to them, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That claim is not disputed. Satan realizes that Adam and Eve have the capacity designed into them by God to be like God. This is really the explanation for really a very strange passage in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, Jesus says in the middle of a discussion he's having with religious leaders, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? Meaning, is it not written in the Old Testament? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Now the only way to make sense of what Jesus is saying here is to recognize that because humans are created in the image of God and have the unique capacity for union with God, that in some ways, in comparison to the rest of the world, we are God's small g. Now, Jesus is the one saying it, and he's getting it out of the Old Testament. And what the recognition is, is that humans are in some way God's small g. 
And that's because we have the unique capacity of being made in the image of God. Jesus' point is, if humans have this capacity so that we can in some way be considered God's, small g, why is it surprising that God, big G, became a human? That's his point. Humans were designed in order for us to be united with God. And Jesus is saying, look, when we planned this whole thing out, we planned it so that I could become one of you. Jesus could not become an animal. And Jesus could not be incarnated as an angel. But humans, because we are created by God in his image, have the unique capacity for God to live out his life in and through. It's possible for human nature and for divine nature to come together. And Jesus' point is, why are you surprised that this has happened? This is why in Exodus chapter 7, the Lord says to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Or why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate or behold the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All these things are making the same point. It's the point Peter's talking about when he uses the phrase participate in the divine nature. As humans, we were created by God with a unique capacity to be united with God. When we sin, we, we cause that capacity to go dormant, to die. When by faith we accept that God himself became a human, died on a cross for our sins was raised from the dead so that we could have new life. When we accept him by faith, that capacity is switched on. And we have the ability to participate in the divine nature. Now, this doesn't mean that we replace God. It doesn't mean that somehow we are God, capital G. What it means is, is that God, capital G, became human in the person of Jesus, took on a human nature, and now we who are human, through the Spirit, can participate in the divine nature. Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. The way this works is, as Peter is trying to say, look, when you became a Christian, Something cataclysmic happened. Something changed. Something ontological is different. Through the Spirit, you and I now have the ability to participate in the divine nature. Don't miss what Peter is saying here. This is big stuff. He's not trying to say, hey, look, you can live a godly life. Just try harder. This is not pop psychology. He's not here to give us sort of a couple of steps that we could try to maybe improve our life a little bit. What he's saying is, look, you may not see it. You may not understand it. But when by faith you accepted Jesus as Lord, God's spirit came to live within you and has created within you the capacity to participate in the divine nature. It's a stunningly strong statement. So the answer to the question 
about your personality and your character, those things that you long to be rid of, if we ask the question, are you stuck for the rest of your life with feelings of anxiety or pride or greed or selfishness? Are you doomed to repeat the failures of your parents or your grandparents? Are you doomed to simply live out what's in your genetic code? The answer is no, no. By God's grace, through his incredible promises, with glory and grace that only God possesses, he has made it possible for you and I to have a new nature. Not just new behavior. Not stuff that we just tack on as sort of behavior modification, but a new nature. It's now possible for those who are believers in Jesus to have God's personality lived out in our lives, to have God's nature in us. Peter is trying in the strongest way possible to say, when you became a Christian, something fundamentally changed. And now, it's actually possible to have a different nature than the one you were born with. A different character than you one you've grown up a different ability to live out life than the one handed to you by your parents. That God has given us the ability to participate in the divine nature. How do you do that? Keep going. Verses 5 through 8. For this very reason... Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there. Peter says, for this reason, meaning... Because God has literally moved heaven and earth to make it possible for you and I to participate in his nature, to be united to him, to have his nature manifest itself in our life. Because God has done everything necessary, including sending his son as a sacrifice for our sins, done everything necessary so that we can participate in the divine nature. Peter says, because this is now true, here are seven things that we ought to pursue. Now he says, you begin with, add to your faith, and then he lists seven things. The reason he says add to your faith and doesn't say add faith is because faith is the place from which we begin. Faith is not a virtue. Faith is where we begin from. And the point is, is look, these are promises that are true for those who are believers in Jesus. That if as a non-Christian you look at these seven, these seven virtues and you want to pursue those so that they are in your life in ever-increasing measure, you're going to fail. It's not that you never do anything good. It's not that you can't be a good person. It's not that you can't do good deeds. But Peter's talking about something else here. He's talking about God's actual personality, God's actual nature being manifest in your life in ever-increasing measure. That's only possible when God opens you up to that capacity. It is not humanly possible. This is why we're not sort of going out into the world and we're trying to just say to everybody, hey, look, here are seven great virtues. Everybody try really hard to do these things. That would be foolish and useless. 
God is saying you have to first be opened up to that capacity, and that happens by faith. And when by faith you accept Christ as Savior, God sends you his Holy Spirit, which switches on in you the capacity to do this. It doesn't guarantee it's going to happen that moment. It doesn't. But it simply opens you up to the opportunity to participate in the divine nature. And once you've been opened up to that opportunity, Peter says, make every effort to go after, and then he lists seven virtues. What I want to put on the screen behind me here is those seven virtues, and I'm going to leave them up there. I think they're in your notes too. With just a short one-sentence definition, just to kind of give us a little bit of an idea of what these words actually mean. Peter says what we want in order to have God's character. God's character is, is comprised of these seven things. First is goodness. Goodness represents excellent character. It means turning away from sinful choices. Second, knowledge. Knowledge is an understanding of the truths of the faith. Understanding truth about who God is, who we are, about the world. Understanding the truth uh, of Christianity. Self-control. Self-control is the discipline to restrain one's desires and follow through on doing what is right, even when it's difficult. The self-controlled person is able to control themselves and make themselves do things they don't want to do. Perseverance is the ability to continue moving forward or standing one's ground despite suffering and opposition. Godliness is doing good deeds towards others or for others and acts of piety towards God. This is the word that's about serving, basically. When you do good things for your neighbor or for God, that's godliness. Mutual affection is kindness towards others. This is that sort of attitude that as we engage with other people, when we do it out of kindness, it's considered mutual affection. And then finally, love is sacrificial, unconditional love. Now what I want you to do is right where you're seated. I want you to look at this list and I want you to pick one. I want you to pick one of these that you would like to have as part of your life. That as you listen to this list, as you listen to this list and hear about knowledge, maybe in your heart you're saying, I would love to be a person who is ever increasing or has knowledge about uh, how uh, God works, about who God is. Perhaps you look at this list and say it's self-control. I wish I was a disciplined, self-controlled person. I wish I could say no to the desires in my flesh. Maybe you look at the list and you say, well, goodness, I'm doing okay there. Like, I feel like I'm trying to avoid sinful choices. I'm turning away from this. But I really wish my life was characterized as well by mutual affection. I really wish I was kind to people. That when I saw people, I didn't treat them as simply cogs in a system or people to do something for me. That I treated them kindly and with love and that I viewed people as people. Whatever it is, pick one. Pick one that you would like to have in your life. You got one? Let's suppose, for example, you chose self-control. Peter's point is, because of what God has accomplished in Christ and in sending us his spirit, you can have that in your life. Not simply as behavior modification, not that you can learn a couple of self-control techniques, but you can have the same kind of control that God has 
resident in your character and in your life because we can participate in the divine nature. And therefore, Peter says, go after self-control. You see, the lie that Satan tells us is, well, you're just an undisciplined person. You were born an undisciplined person. You're never going to be able to wake up in the morning and pray. You're never going to be able to make yourself do the stuff that you want to do. You're never going to be able to make yourself go to that job that you hate going to. You're just an undisciplined person. What God is saying is that's a lie. Yeah, that's who you were before Christ. But I have moved heaven and earth, so that's no longer true for you. Peter says, because you are a believer in Jesus, you have been given the ability to participate in the divine nature. Therefore, add to your faith self-control. And the point is, if you want self-control to be part of your life, not just in some sort of behavioral sort of way, but actually part of your character and your nature, Peter says, well, make every effort. Go for it. Go after it. Pursue self-control. Ask God to make you self-controlled. Imitate those who are self-controlled. Do spiritual disciplines like memorizing scripture that is designed to increase self-control. And the promise of this passage is it will come into your life. That your nature will change to be like Christ's nature. It doesn't matter what kind of genetic structure you were born with. It doesn't matter what kind of household you were raised in. It doesn't matter what's currently been true of your life ever since the beginning. What God is saying is, is look, I've made it possible. If you want self-control, you can have it. My self-control transformed your nature so that God's nature is lived out in us. It's incredible news. Incredible news that you and I do not have to be bound to live our lives the way we were born, the way we were raised, or the way that our genetic structure says we're supposed to live our lives because God has worked a miracle to give us a new nature, to give us the possibility to participate in His nature. And whatever that thing you picked off that list said, man, I wish that was true of me. God is saying, come get it. Make every effort. Do this thing. Go after this. The promise is you will be successful. It's not going to be easy. That's why it says make every effort. But the point is God would never tell you to do this if you were going to fail at it. The point is God would not have sent his son to become a human for all of eternity, to die for our sins in the most miserable, hellish experience even conceivable if it wasn't so this could happen. He has made a way for you and I, who are believers in Jesus, to participate in the divine nature. And so Peter says, for this reason, get after it. Pick one and go for it. Stop listening to the lie that you're just a weak person, you can't persevere, or you're just a mean-spirited person, you can't love people. Stop listening to that stuff. Listen to God who's saying to you, I have made it possible. Come get it. Now that's the word of encouragement. There's also a word of admonition in here. And the word of admonition comes from the fact that when you look at this list, take another look back up here. Is there anything on this list that you think God has picked for you to get into your life currently? It may be the same one you picked. It may be something different. For me, personally, when I look at the list, it's perseverance, number four. doesn't mean I got everything else on the list. (laughs) 
It just means that for whatever reason right now, God says we're going after that one. On my study break, I spent a lot of time asking the Lord, why does it have to be so hard? Why does life have to be so difficult? Why does faith have to be so difficult? Why do I have to have so many assignments in my life in which it's just, it's hard to hear the Lord's voice? I mean, I remember days in which I would, early on where you would pray and ask God for guidance and he would provide, it would be crystal clear, you would get going and be successful. Now I look around in my life and I go, everything's hard. The car accident in the middle of the study break, that was part of this. All of a sudden I'm on a study break and now my car is totaled. I'm like, Lord, what are you doing? How is this supposed to work? How are we gonna make this work? I got currently in my life, I got issues with cars, I got issues with houses, I got issues with schedule, I got issues with preaching, I got issues with ministry, I got issues all over the place. And I'm asking the Lord, why does this have to be so hard? Why can't you just say, do this, I do it, and you just make it go? Why do we have to get in the middle of it and there have to be these left turns that you weren't expecting and all sorts of crazy stuff happening? It's tiring, it's exhausting. God, why do I have to spend so much time asking you to tell me what to, just say it and I'll do it. Do you know what his answer was? His answer was, I'm trying to create in you perseverance. Like you don't want to be the kind of person who gives up at the first sign of bad news. You don't want to be the kind of person that's always worried that every little thing is going to torpedo what's going to happen. You don't want to be the person that everything has to line up exactly perfectly, has to be crystal clear in order for you to do anything. You don't want to be the person constantly besieged by doubts. You want to be the kind of person who stands strong. You want to be the kind of person who chooses to believe even when the evidence doesn't line up in that direction. You want to be the kind of person who stays the course. And I do. But it's tiring. It's painful. It's hard for our human nature to give way to God's nature. And the admonishment from the passage is, if God has picked one of these for you, Stick with it. If God has decided what he wants to give you is moral goodness and so he's taken a man out of your life or a woman out of your life who was a temptation to sin because it was causing you not to pursue moral goodness, it's painful and it's difficult, but the admonishment is, look, this stuff doesn't come into our life without making every effort. Meaning it's hard. And if God has taken that person out of your life because he wants you to be pure sexually, he wants you to be pure in your emotions and your thoughts, the admonishment of this passage is don't give up. Don't run back to that relationship. Don't run back into that situation. God is wanting to bring out his name. He wants to make you into a good person morally good person. He wants to make you into a knowledgeable person. If the courses you're going through, the Sunday school class that you're in, or the books you're being asked to read are difficult to understand, stick with it. God wants to create knowledge in you. If, like me, you're being asked to walk a difficult journey where you don't have all of the signs and you don't know exactly what's going on and the puzzle pieces don't all fit together, the point is don't bail out. Make every effort. Let God create perseverance in you. It's not easy for our human nature to give way to the divine nature. Which leads Peter to his closing, verses 9 through 11. But whoever does not have these qualities is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. 
Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to, make your, to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's point is, is look, if God's picked one of these for your life, if God's picked self-control and he's arranged everything in your life to be about self-control and you decide, I don't want anything to do with self-control and you bail out. If you look at these seven qualities and you think, that's too much work, I don't want any part of that. Peter says, the problem is, you're going to forget that you're a Christian. Notice he doesn't say you're going to lose your salvation. Doing these seven things didn't make you a Christian. Not doing these seven things won't make you not a Christian. It doesn't work that way. But what it does is, if these things are not in our lives in ever-increasing measure, not all at once, but right now, God's trying to create perseverance in me. If I quit and don't let him do that, I'm not going to have perseverance. And the problem is, my human nature will begin to dominate the possibility of the divine nature living itself out in me. The only response is, is that I'm going to start to think, well, I must not be a Christian. That's what Peter's saying, is you forget that you've been cleansed. Not that you stop being clean anymore. It's that you forget and the point is, is that if you don't keep pursuing these things, you're going to forget that you even have the possibility of being different than you are. And you're going to think to yourself, life's just going to keep going on the same way. If you're engaged in sexual immorality and you keep doing that, the idea that you're a Christian is going to fade from view. Because really, what's the difference? It's just your human nature just like it was before. But, Peter says, if you make every effort to pursue these things, the good point is you're going to be successful. Not that it's going to be easy. But it's a promise of the living God that this will happen. That if you pursue these things, they will be created in you. And this will be an unambiguous sign that you are genu uh, genuinely a Christian. Because the one unambiguous miracle in existence, every other miracle that's ever, been, uh, that's ever happened, Casting out demons. People say to Jesus, well, he cast out demons by Satan's power. It was ambiguous. You could read it two ways. The only unambiguous miracle in all of existence is a transformed life. Because this is something Satan can't pull off. It's something that no human can pull off. No human can will themselves to have these seven things in their life in ever-increasing measure. You can modify your behavior a little bit so you look a little better. But nobody can bring about genuine transformation of character and nature except God. That's why in this church today there are people walking around here who once in a previous sort of life were thieves or uh, <clears throat> homosexual offenders or were given to bursts of anger or whatever it may be but have been so completely transformed that if you met them and asked them you'd go, what? That's you? It's because it's only possible by God's Spirit. And so Peter says, look, when you do these things, you will have the one guaranteed assurance that your calling and election is real. And when Jesus shows up, that's going to be a good day. But if you are going after these virtues, when Jesus comes in his kingdom, it's going to be a great thing. So I want you to go back to where we were at the beginning of the sermon. That quality you desperately wish wasn't part of your life. That impatience, that judgmentalism, that negativity, that harshness, that pride, that coveting, 
whatever it may be. And I want you to hear the word of the Lord to you and I today. Yes, that's part of who you are because that's how you were born. You and I were born into sin. But that is not need to be part of your personality going forward. Because if by faith you have accepted Jesus as Lord, he has given you his spirit so that you can participate in the divine nature. Any of these things that you want in your life, Peter says go after them. Ask God for them. Pursue them. And when he begins to create them in you, don't bail out. And what you will find is is that God's nature begins to manifest itself in our nature. Not that we never sin again, not that we're never tempted anymore, but genuine change in our personality, in our nature, and in our character. It's the promise of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we need the eyes of faith because we don't see it sometimes. Lord, we think everything is going to go on exactly the way it's always been. Lord, we've lived with this pride in our life for so long. We've lived with this greed for so long. We live with this insecurity for so long. We think there's no possibility it can change. So Lord, right now I need your spirit to tell each one of us that this is possible. I need you to open our eyes so that we can see the transformation that's possible, not just in modifying our behavior, but in actually living out your nature. Lord, I don't even understand how in the world you made this possible, but I believe. I'm choosing to trust you, Lord God, that you can create perseverance. I'm choosing to trust that you can create discipline. I'm choosing to trust that you can make us people of love. God, help us to believe. Create within us your nature so that we might see your life lived out in us. God, I pray for anyone here who walked in this morning discouraged and defeated, thinking they were going to be the same for the rest of their life. Lord, would you please, please speak to them. God, I just delivered the message. It's your job to convince them that it's true. Lord, I pray for those right now who perhaps came wanting to bail out of the Perseverance Project or to bail out of the Goodness Project or to bail out of the Love Project. For somebody who may be here wondering why you've put so many unlovable people in their life, it's because you want to teach them to love. And Lord, I pray that they would have endurance. I pray that they would stick with it. I pray that this would be a word of encouragement from you to them to tell them that you love them, that you want to do this for them. And Lord, I pray, especially for those who are not yet believers in Jesus, I pray they would not walk out of here and try to modify their behavior. I pray instead that they would choose to put their faith in you and allow you to create within them the possibility for new life, new character, new nature. Lord, do this for the glory of Christ our Lord so at the end when he comes in his eternal kingdom we might celebrate your glorious promises and power that has made this available. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.